the appeal of Soul Revival was we weren't playing by the old rules. So we didn't really fit into this big new argument in youth ministry of attractional approach versus no guts, no glory. We were just being Christians and we were being sacrificial Christians and we were being intergenerational Christians. So as we got older and some of us got married and then we had kids, we didn't stop meeting together on Saturday night. So we kind of, rather than saying we're going to start an intergenerational ministry, we grew into becoming an intergenerational ministry because of the theological framework of being sacrificial. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast, and I'm very excited to be in your ears or in your eyes again, as we like to say. I'm here joined with my usual co-host, Stu Crawshaw. How are you, Stu? Hello, Joel. And rejoined again by our uh, Soul Revival youth, not youth pastor, children's pastor. Sorry, we've got so many pastors. <laughs> got to get the names right. Uh Children's pastor, Tim Bellharts. How are you today, Tim? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thanks, Joel. Thank Great you for being back. Thank you for joining us again. No worries. Now, I, I, know, I noticed in the last episode you like to talk about mosaics. Are you a fan of tiling? Uh, <laughs> just wanted to clear that up. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's not a particular passion of mine. Yeah. Um, a good tile. Um, yeah, not, you don't find yourself in the bathroom chipping away? No, 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 no. Um, mm, I wonder if I should have got a darker blue. Yeah, yeah no, no. I'm, I mean, I'm quite happy with the tiles we have in our, in our place, That's but uh, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them, no. I do actually, um, in my other job, work for a tiling company, not for a, t- a building company, and like normal tiling seems like, you know, square tiles, that seems normal, but mosaic tiling, I feel like would be intensely difficult. I, I mean, have I can appreciate, I haven't thought too much about it though, <laughs> but I have, I'm aware of people who do mosaics and tiling like yeah. that um, as an art form, and while I have no artistic ability myself, I can appreciate the amount of effort that goes into uh, the kind of mosaic things and, and you know <laughs> intricate stained glass windows and those kind of things where you bring in a lot of different shapes and trying yeah. to make pictures out of small things that yeah I can yeah. really appreciate that and cutting the tiles man it'd be hard yeah, yeah anyway uh, we're not talking about tiling today <laughs> oh, <that's good. laughs> um, you joined us last episode and we were talking about um, the theological perspective including people in um, the church young people in the church um, Stu, I thought you could enlighten us. What are we going to talk about this week after yeah. talking about that? Yeah, that's good. So we've introduced the problem that most churches around Australia and in the, in the Western world anyway have, which is that there's a lot of young people uh, who aren't coming to church and there's a lot more talk about that. We talked about an English article that was talking about the Church of England trying to double the numbers of young people in the next 10 years and we thought that was an interesting idea and we thought we'd explore that a bit from an Australian point of view and look at what are some of the strategies that people have used for including young people in churches and what are some of the strategies that are being used now and each time we look at a different strategy we're going to compare it to the shock absorber. So I thought what we could do today is go right back to uh, uh, look at what happened after the Jesus movement in the 70s uh, when we talked about the youth quake of the 1960s and the generation gap, how a lot of young people started leaving then. And then that's sort of like the time where people started going, oh, okay, once upon a time we just opened the doors of a church and all the young people would come along, but now they're not. So how do we have strategies to reach young people and to include them? And so I thought, yeah, let's go back to when they first started thinking about strategies to include young people after the 60s. And um, we tend to call that traditional youth ministry. So it's good for us to start with a strategy that's sort of like a standard traditional youth ministry strategy that comes out of uh, that period of time. So, yeah, I thought we could look at the 70s today and look at some of the strategies that came out of there. Yeah, that's cool. I like the way um, I like that term youth quake. I think that's pretty cool. I yeah. think we'll keep using that. But um, speaking of the 70s, I thought, you know, we, we always like to have a bit, little bit of pop culture 
in uh, this podcast and um, you kindly said that I could have a go at it. <laughs> but um, I thought, speaking out the 70s, is that um, I've been, uh, one of my favourite bands is ACDC and has been for a very long time since like probably middle high school. Um, but I have, speaking of the 70s, have been listening to a song by them, which I, I can't remember if it's on their 77 album, Let There Be Rock or 78 from Power Age. But it's a song called Overdose. Right. And I don't know why, I'm just really into that at the moment. But yeah, I was right. just reflecting on it. I feel like ACDC, uh, their peak was between 77 and 79, which I feel like, is that around when the Jesus movement was? Uh, it was about, it was, yeah, it's actually it about around the time we're going to talk about today because okay. the Jesus movement was around the early 70s in Australia. It started a bit later in Australia than America and it started uh, in the 70s in Places like Mullumbimgi and um, Nimbin, there was even some stuff going on there. They're the the towns Sydney. around Byron Bay, yeah, in Byron New Bay South and Wales. in yeah. Sydney, and then across the the country. Uh, so yeah, in Sydney there was commune started, like the House of the Gentle Bunyip, the Attic. Um, there were others as well. The Purple Door was another one. Uh, these were all Jesus movement communes that were influenced by the American scene, with Larry Norman Records being sold in Christian bookshops in Australia and people hearing about the newspapers and people getting visits from overseas artists, they started doing the same thing. And uh, But by the mid-70s, when the, the hippie movement in general started to die off and the Jesus movement also changed, what we're going to talk about today is what happened to those Jesus movement leaders when these communes closed down. And there were some that continued on the way they were. Uh, Christian Surfers in Sydney was started as a Jesus movement ministry that continues to be one of the biggest youth movements uh, to this day, it's fantastic movement, and that continued on. But a lot of the leaders from the communes of places like the Attic and the Purple Door and places, they left those communes and joined the institutional churches. Some went into the charismatic churches like Hillsong, and others went into uh, the Uniting Church and the Anglican Church. And today we're going to look at what happens when Jesus movement people come out of that into uh, the denominations, and that happened at the same time. So 77, 78, 79 is when what we're talking about today is taking place. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of interesting because ACDC were known as a hard rock band, obviously mm. not wearing outlandish clothes kind of associated with the early 60s. You know, Bon Scott's just wearing denim jeans, tight, very tight denim jeans and a denim jacket with no shirt on. Yeah, It was like a, a much more strict back time from maybe the early yeah, 70s. Yeah. And I was wondering, does that kind of match, that sounds like it kind of matched up with the where the Jesus movement was, Youthquake, Jesus movement, and then coming back into the institutionalized yeah, church. I think that's a really good point. I think uh, youth culture keeps changing every five years or so during the seventies and eighties and nineties, and youth ministry has too because the the Jesus communes in places like the Attic in Sydney would not only have people dropping out of churches to join these communes, which was happening in America, but they also ran coffee houses, and those coffee houses were places that kids who went to actual youth groups and were part of churches and never left those churches would go to these coffee houses on a Friday night and they would have someone stand up and sing and perform and then speak and, and they were, yeah, uh, um, it, it was a real interesting way of influencing the broader church even while they were open. But then slowly as those places closed down, the, the youth ideas came into the church. Can, should we just uh, quickly revisit what the Jesus movement was, just yes. to make that pretty clear? Yeah. Um, do you know what the Jesus movement is, or should we let Stu, who's researched this for ages, <laughs> um, oh, give us the <laughs> Stu is much more capable on this than, than I am. I'm having to hand back to you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
Oh, well, really briefly. Um, we'll just, use, we'll just utilise all your work for, oh, for us no to worries, look good, no I think. <laughs> the, the 1960s was a time of great change in the West. There was uh, technological change with new innovations like the pill, which helped to create the sexual revolution. There was the motor car, there's the transistor radio. There was a lot more opportunity for youth popular culture to be spread through those uh, things. And there was just a sense amongst the baby boomer generation that they wanted a new new direction. And so during the 60s, there was rock and roll. There was like a whole heap of experimentation. People started dressing differently and, and living differently and having different values. And so the church was actually seen as the old way of life that they wanted to in part replaced with a new way of life actually and interestingly there was um yeah this real big surge of youth culture that sometimes the church opposed so there's an example i think we talked about in a previous podcast of oz magazine in england when the young hippies were making a magazine that was they were selling to young people that uh, the government authorities thought was becoming what they termed as pornographic as it was talking about lots of issues around sexuality for young people and stuff and the government actually took that magazine to court and the church supported that. So there were demonstrations outside of the court of Christians saying we should close this magazine down, it's really terrible. So there was this sense, I think, in the 60s that the church was uh, this modernist institution that we needed to replace, uh, that it was in it was in step with the government and the institutions that they wanted to replace as well. And, um, you know, in America during the Vietnam War, when young people were demonstrating against the Vietnam War, they, they'd walk past, I don't know, the First Presbyterian Church in San Francisco or whatever, and there'd probably be a big flagpole with an American flag flying outside the church. And so there was a lot of Christians that were actually in favour of the Vietnam War and, and young people associated the church with, with the government that they were opposing on so many things. So when, when young people started dropping out of society in the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and in um, all sorts of different, uh, Laurel Canyon in, in Los Angeles, uh, um, New York had uh, little uh, communes as well, but right across America there were young people um, trying to find a new way of life. And it was interesting that young people who were Christians were uh, really interesting because there was a lot of young Christians who weren't uh, rock and roll enough for their peers, but they were also too rock and roll for the church. So young people that liked rock and roll but wanted to sing about Jesus started Jesus communes. So there wasn't one leader of this new Jesus movement, but there were lots of expressions of it popping up. There were Jesus People magazines. There were Jesus People artists like Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill and Keith Green. These people were having big concerts. Um, there was Jesus Movement communes all over America and within a couple of years of the Jesus Movement starting in the early 70s, there was something like 800 Jesus communes across America. And so this new vibe was coming to Australia too. So the young Christians like um, Fuzz Kiddo, uh, Fuzz Kiddo was a, a guy I interviewed actually in the early 90s about the Jesus Movement when I first started studying it. And he, he told me that he was in a commune and the rule in their commune was that they had to bring a street person home every night. And one night he woke up and he had eight people who were uh, homeless people who were uh, he, he called street people. That's what they used to call them back in the 70s. But these homeless people were sleeping in his room with him and these guys were all in his room. And he woke up one night with eight people in his room. He's like, oh, I just can't do this. He, he said, 
to, to him the, the commune idea was just not sustainable. And so then he started going, well, I just can't keep this pace up. And as the hippie culture started to die off, the Jesus movement was so defined and in tune and integrated into this hippie culture that when the hippie culture went, it lost some of its meaning as well. And so it needed to morph and change. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, right. So if that if that's happening in America, is it, and you spoke about fuzz keto, was it as prevalent in Australia? Yeah, prob- probably. Uh, I mean, everything in Australia is smaller than in America. Uh, but it did have a big impact. Like I said before, Christian Surfers started down at Cronulla, which is in our area in the Sutherland Shire. And it was a ministry to surfers. And the idea was that the early Christian surfers saw that a lot of surfers weren't going to church for the same sort of reasons that kids weren't going to church across the world, really. But surfers needed people to take the gospel to them. So they used that, I suppose, that incarnational theological idea that we talked about last week of taking the gospel to the Christian, well, sorry, to the surfing community. And so they went and they preached the gospel to surfers. So that was a big thing at the time because in our area of Sydney in the Solomon Shire that Christian surfers ministry was separate to the to the to the churches after a while it started out of Gaimia Baptist Church and to start off with those Christian surfers kept going to Gaimia Baptist but it became bigger than Gaimia Baptist over time and be, had a life of its own but culturally it affected all the youth ministries in the Solomon Shire that now had this this awareness that we need to take the gospel to surfers as well as kids that don't surf and that a lot of surfers don't go to church so yeah i think the impact was cultural and i think there was a a lot of uh ideas from the jesus movement that would impact the institutional churches the other thing is that after the jesus movement um, the jesus movement had a really strong focus on the holy spirit and the uh the, the fact that we could have a relationship with jesus and that was interesting because they felt they were contrasting a culture from the 60s and 50s in established mainline churches, which was God is other and he he is very separate to us. They felt that was more the vibe and the culture that was in Sydney. So a lot of young people, when the Jesus movement finished, a lot of young people went into the charismatic churches rather than going back into mainline churches. But what we're interested in today is just a little subset of story of that. What happened when Fuzz Kiddo and his contemporaries went into the denominations and how did they impact the existing mainline churches and we can talk a bit about the charismatic churches as well and uh, pentecostal churches but hillsong for example uh just before we get onto the story they they were really impacted by the jesus movement i was actually at a wedding of all places uh, a couple of years ago with um uh I, i'm a chaplain to cronulla sharks and one of the sharks was one of, well, one of the players was getting married and i was sitting at a table with someone from hillsong uh, at the wedding and uh, he was telling me that he and his wife were actually originally in the 1970s part of the Mullumbimby Christian commune, a Jesus movement commune in the early 70s. And when the Jesus movement finished, they moved back to Sydney with their whole, a whole lot of their friends moved back to Sydney together. And they went along to, I think it was Hills Christian Life Centre, is that what yeah. it was called, Tim? Uh, in oh, the, yeah, it sounds right. In the yeah. 70s. And they went along and apparently all the young people sat on one half of the church and all the adults were sitting on the other <laughs> half. And it was a bit awkward the first meeting because all this, apparently they only had 30 or 40 people in the church in those days and all these young people came in and they made up half the church. Apparently someone said to them, why don't you guys play some of your music for us? And that's how Hillsong started, that these Christian hippies came into this church and they gave them the permission, the opportunity to sing and uh, they started 
a new kind of Christian music that was based on the Christian music of the Jesus movement, like stuff that Randy Samuel and Larry Norman were playing with rock and roll with guitars and drums and stuff, which morphed into contemporary Christian music, which then turned into contemporary Christian worship music. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a really good example of how the Jesus movement impacted the the churches. Yeah. Well, that's that's um, it's really interesting <laughs> that you've made all those links between the Jesus movement and then to obviously Hillsong is a um, a big part of their ministry is their music. So yeah, that, is, that's yeah. that's really interesting that that's how it played out. Um, we talked about we're talking about how the Jesus people coming into the institutionalized church. You talked about Fuzz Keto. Was there anyone else that you've um, you picked up in your research that like was doing things like that? Yeah, well, well, a lot of these uh, Jesus movement leaders started a thing called Black Stump, and together they started this big um, music festival called Music and Arts Festival and Teaching Festival called Black Stump, which is very similar to the the Woodstock idea. So they took that hippie big concert idea, and that that became a mainstay of a lot of Christian youth ministry for the next twenty years, and. Uh, but yeah, uh, Fuzz and his friends were starting that. Another guy, uh, John Kitson, who was originally from Armadale, I think, he actually joined this, the um, Sydney Anglican Department of Youth Department and he became part of the youth department in the, the late 70s, early 80s. And he was starting to bring some of the ideas that we, they were playing around with in these coffee houses and bring into a more structured form. Like what, what would it look like to bring a Jesus movement coffee house or a Jesus movement commune idea into a local church. And so your, cont- your traditional youth ministry on a Friday night is very similar to the DNA of the coffee houses of the Jesus movement. And so John actually wrote that up, which was very helpful, and people can get a copy of this book still. Uh, it's called Brass Tax, and John wrote Brass Tax as a way of trying to capture the stuff that they'd learn in the Jesus movement and say to local churches, how can you start strategies to include young people in your church because we were very successful in the late early 70s bringing young people into the Jesus movement communes through the coffee houses and the communes and the concerts and the black stump and all this sort of stuff but now how do you do that in a local church week to week and so he wrote this strategy called brass tax which is basically a funnel method of or a funnel strategy of youth ministry. And the basic idea, is is that okay to unpack that a bit, John? Yeah, definitely. Right? I was about to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the strategy is um, basically you run a Friday night youth group, you have some games, uh, youth games, or you have a, you know, a band play or whatever it might be, something that kids like, and then you get all the kids to come, you invite them all to come to the youth group, and they all come along to the youth group, and a lot of them aren't Christians, some of them are Christians, and you have games and you get to know each other and, and have a fun night. And then the idea is that some of those kids might get interested in Jesus. And they get interested in Jesus through the youth talk that happens on the Friday night. And then they do the youth talk. And then afterwards they do a supper, which was often chips and cordial. Like <laughs> that was pretty standard. So it wasn't super elaborate. But that was the format that most churches in Sydney adopted really quickly after the late 1970s. Most churches in Sydney had a youth group with a youth night, and that was based on that brass tax model. Yeah, yeah. Right. Tim, I've got two questions for you. Mm. I know that um, you mentioned black stumps, Stu. Yeah. Um, I know that Sorovolvo has gone to a few black stumps. Did you ever go? I didn't, but did you ever go? I I remember two distinctly. I may have dropped in at some others. One, I went. Um, uh, I didn't go with Soul Revival. I, I don't think I went with a friend. We we camped together. I'm not sure why. We probably. I'm sure we. Where was it no. usually held? 
Uh, so it was, um, what's the name of the campsite? It's Scout Camp. Yeah, Appen, it's Appen, Appen, yeah down the Appen, Appen Way. Okay. Yeah. Um, the name will come to me later. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was really, um, it was really great. Like as someone who's into music, really loves um, Christian alternative rock kind of music. It yep. was really, oh, really fun. Um, so yeah, so I went um, a couple of times. Um, yeah, a couple of yeah good memories from there. But uh, a lot of the times that Soul Revival went to Black Stump, I think I was probably too young. I, okay. It was slightly before I was kind of old enough to head off with the group. Um, you brought up it a few times before, Stu, is that there was quite a few wild things happening at a Black Stump. Yeah, we could even do an episode on it one day. I think. <laughs> it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, it was very funny. We had a lot of fun. Uh, Didn't someone take a pool table? No, that was something else. We did else. take a pool table. No, we did. <laughs> <laughs> we, we found a pool table on a council cleanup one day and we used to... This is way getting ahead of where we're going today, <laughs> but but we'll just jump there. Uh, we got we, we got a pool table, so we just wanted to get a pool table. We found this pool table that had rip, been ripped, and we brought it back, and it was so hard to play pool on because the ball would always <laughs> get stuck on the rip and all this. Anyway, someone had this great idea. We went to this music festival, and we took the pool table with us, and one of my fond memories was standing around with a bunch of guys with all with long hair with Nirvana shirts on and Pantera shirts on and and... You know, that looked a bit different to a lot of the Christian youth in the day because <laughs> they didn't often dress like that because we had a lot of surfers and a lot of other people who joined Soul Revival. And um, this is like mid-90s, I think. And um, anyway, we, we're in the rain in the at, at Blackstump. They had like a village where they had to sold food and stuff. And we're in the rain playing pool in the rain <laughs> on a pool table in the middle of the mud and dirt with with our shirts off just playing pool <laughs> and people walking past going what are you doing and i remember someone going we're playing pool <laughs> that's what we're doing and we just yeah, what does so it look we, like yeah, i don't know why we did it it was that's an example we just had a lot of fun yeah, yeah okay. but but the blackstone was like that it was very creative so mm-hmm. uh yeah we just have we, it was a good chance for christians to have some fun and to hear their own voice so the christian music bands that played at blackstone spoke about stuff that young people young christians were interested in and some people think christian music is a bit daggy and contemporary christian music is but i grew up feeling like it was it was actually great to have something where we could sing some of the stuff that we wanted to sing about yeah it was good yeah cool okay so my second question for you tim you hear about what um john kitson was talking about with his book brass tacks and then the funnel method what's Mm. your reaction to that hearing that that's a way of him including young people how do you how do you feel about that yeah i think it's um even though he he's doing this uh many decades ago it's still an idea that resonates through and that we find um when, when i'm doing consultancy for churches in, in children's ministry and my youth ministry colleagues um we uh the, we'd not necessarily use the word funnel method now but we might talk about um an attractional ministry um in the way that we're thinking about uh the primary um, strategy, I suppose, is to have fun things that you're doing uh, that non-Christian kids or youth will want to come to. Right. Um, and so we would we would talk about that as being a strategy. It's not a strategy we promote. Uh, it's one that we actually have some um, uh, strong criticisms of. Um, uh, but it's it is one that's still out there, and even if there are other strategies at play, there's always a little bit of a hint of that. I think, and I think there's a right impulse there. Like we want to be a places where um, non-Christian uh, kids and youth can come to and feel known and welcomed and and loved and you know enjoy what's going on. Um, uh, but yeah, sometimes there's this 
dynamic that's played is you're either attractional and therefore fun or you're um, boring and therefore no one wants to come to you and mm-hmm. you have to choose. And I think that sometimes people have that in their mind that they must choose one of those two options. Um, and so sometimes even when I'm talking with people and um, that they might hear, you know, sort of a, a hesitancy in me aspiring to be attractional. They go, oh, but you're so, so therefore you're saying that it has to be boring and dull and um, that that's the only other option. I'm like, no, 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 there's lots of lots and lots of room <laughs> in the middle for other yeah. options, which we'll get to over the next, uh, today and also the next few episodes yeah, as well. Yeah. Is that something, is that perhaps a legacy of that brass tacks understanding is that you have to choose whether you're going to be boring or you're going to be interesting to people? Well, I, th- I think the, the world of the 70s was a lot different to where we are now and the generation of Christian leaders in the 70s fought a lot of the battles, I suppose, in the church that we really benefit from. So in the Anglican church, we actually had a situation where everyone used to have to wear robes uh, to church if they were clergy and and that was if you were the youth minister or not. So, you know, there would have been youth ministers rocking up to churches in Sydney in the 60s and the 70s still wearing robes reading from the prayer book and having hymns. And they didn't have drums and guitars and stuff in churches and stuff. So a lot of that generation of the 70s, John Kitson's era, were saying, why do we have to have these cultural artifacts from the past as well as the gospel? Why can't we just preach the gospel? And so today, you know, we're very much more relaxed in our churches because of some of the things that they achieve. I would like you to wear the robes one day, but... Dude, I have worn robes, yeah. (laughs) But can you just turn up to church one day? (laughs) 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 But the... um, (laughs) But yeah, but the the thing there is that um, it was boring to young people in some ways. Some, I mean, not to all young people. Some pe- young people think the traditions are actually really deep and abiding and really lovely. So you've got to be careful we don't stereotype. And there's been a reaction all young people. back towards that actually there in the has. last decade, yeah, which has been has. It's further has down it? the yeah, history. Do you want to just tell us about that? Oh, look, this is something we can come to okay. later on, yeah. if you like. But yes, there has been um, the legacy of a number of decades of um, attractional um, ministries and funnel methods is actually sometimes you end up with ministries that are quite weak um, in terms of their ecclesiology, their understanding of church, their understanding of the gospel, and you can end up with a sort of a thin veneer of Jesus laid over a whole lot of really fun things that you're doing. Um, And actually in the last 10 years, there's actually been a noticeable change with um, teenagers and particularly young adults who may have grown up in those kind of churches, realising that their understanding of Jesus and the church and of the community is quite thin um, and therefore um, either converting from evangelical churches to uh, Catholic churches or finding other um, reformed churches, but ones that are, are more liturgical and have more um, you know, robes and hymns and structured worship and liturgies yeah. um, because actually find that, that that gives a depth and a meaning. Um, but yeah, that, that's a little bit down the future. No, that's cool. It's really interesting. But um, my next question was, we, we were talking about the impacts of the Jesus people coming back into the institutional church. Brass tax is one of those impacts and the, what came out of that. Was there anything else that the, that impacted the church massively? Yeah, well, as, as we said, there were a lot of young people going into to churches like Hillsong. A lot of charismatic churches grew a lot during that period of time. But what you find happening with the, the, the brass tax idea is this idea that young people are not coming to church, so we need an in-between place between church and, and the culture. So the Christian surfers actually went to the beach to preach the gospel and hang out, and they had a Christian surfers house, which looked a little bit like a commune. It was still going right up until the 1990s. But the Christian youth groups were seen as, as an intermittent place, and that's why they had this idea of let's have fun so that non-Christian 
kids can actually have some known known space that we can then speak into. That was the idea of it. But the funnel method was that you have a lot of kids go on Friday night and then some of them will go into Bible studies and be interested in a youth Bible study and then some of those will go to church. But what's really interesting is that by the 80s, by the time I was growing up, this model had been around now for 10 years and uh, Mark Center, uh, the third, we've talked about him on previous podcasts, he had that really interesting theory that he developed in a book called The Coming Revolution of Youth Ministry where he says every new strategy of youth ministry eventually institutionalizes over time. And so it started by a leader who's really uh, good at understanding what he's trying to achieve and very passionate about the gospel. But then as the idea spreads, the people who pick up on that idea don't often have the passion of the originator. And so a really organic idea that works really well with the originator can become institutionalized because people just put the principles in place rather than the original passion in place. And that kind of happened with the brass tacks idea that I, I think that a lot of youth ministries across Sydney and around Australia that were using this idea had people running the youth groups that were just like ticking boxes. Oh, we run some games, we, we have a talk and we have some cordial and chips and then it'll work. And the reality was there's a lot of kids coming along that weren't actually interested in the gospel. They were just coming along. It was a bit chaotic. A lot of youth leaders got burnt out because they actually didn't see a lot of gospel fruit coming along from um, what they were doing. And so uh, by the 80s, there were, to answer your question, there were new approaches being explored. And there was uh, a group of mates who I think were, some of them came from St Ives in Sydney, in Sydney Anglican Church there. And I was talking to Dudley Ford about this once, who was the minister at the time in the late 80s, and he said that his youth minister, Ken Moser, had picked up some ideas from the States where, again, people in the States were coming up with some new ideas about how to do youth ministry differently to that attractional approach because of the problems Tim was talking about. And uh, the youth minister's name was Ken Moser, and his mate Al Stewart and Ed Vaughan co-wrote a book together called No Guts, No Glory. And that was a seismic shift in the late 80s from the Jesus movement. It was a ba basically a reaction against this institutionalized form of the Jesus movement that was maybe not meeting kids' real needs anymore. It was just meeting their perceived needs. That's is what the book, the words the book used. The perceived needs were they need time for social time and hang out, but were they really hearing the Bible? Were they he really hearing the gospel and becoming Christians? And in the book, uh, No Guts, No Glory, they're actually saying that maybe the opposite was true. Maybe the funnel method was actually stopping some kids from hearing the gospel because of the chaos of the games and maybe when the the youth leader got up to do a talk no one actually listened so no one was actually hearing the gospel and they changed the language around funnel method from funnel method to dump truck and they said rather than being a funnel method it's more like a dump truck method where a whole bunch of teenagers pile into the car park at the beginning of the night it's almost like a dump truck comes in with all these kids and dumps them all out into the car park and they run around the car park and then they run around the church hall and yeah you might have 30 40 50 kids in your youth group but are they really meeting jesus and so they asked that really hard question and the interesting thing about that book was it was um their solution to that was what they called the bead theory which was if you have guts and you want real glory you need to shut down well, maybe not need to, but maybe think about shutting down your Friday night youth group with all the games and saying to the Christian kids, we're just going to start a Bible study. And that Bible study maybe is going to meet on Sunday afternoon before church. And we're actually going to do away with all the games and the, the fun and trying to attract kids. And we're just going to get back to doing a Bible study. And that's the, that's the real gutsy thing that we're going to 
contrasts the attractional approach. And I think that's part of where Tim's coming from, that in his generation people are saying, is it a fun youth group or is it boring? Because some you, you, the, the, the gutsy part of that approach of No Guts, No Glory is you lose 30 or 40 kids because all the non-Christian kids aren't going to go to a Bible study, so they will leave. So you actually kill your youth group and you have four or five kids who are Christians who are in Bible study doing what could be perceived as boring, sitting around reading the Bible. But the idea of the book was that will grow itself again because those kids will get stoked on being Christian and they'll ask their friends and they'll ask their friends and it'll grow again. And that's their solution to the attractional approach that kind of started a massive debate in the 90s in youth ministry circles in Sydney, which which I you know call as even like a war in youth ministry because the attractional approach people and the no guts, no glory people who were adopting this new approach were debating whether which was the best way to do things. And so that was that was very defining in the Sydney Anglican plate. Anyway, it'd be interesting to hear from people who are listening or watching from other denominations to see if some of that debate did leak into other denominations. But that definitely was a big one in ours. Mm. Absolutely. If you have any of those ideas or thoughts, send them to joel at shockazorba.com.au. should plug that just before we continue. It's so fascinating, though, as we, talk, we look at... Um, the history of the world, like we talk about the earthquake, the hippies, uh, and then into the 70s and the 80s, and then how the church has gone along with that, and there's all these reactions to different things, and that happens in culture as well as in the church. Mm-hmm. And I find that really fascinating that uh, sometimes it's often an overreaction to an overreaction or, or whatever, but um, we like to talk about that the shock absorber we feel is a way of absorbing those cultural shocks in a much easier way to still, but still also hold on to the timeless truths of the gospel. So how is the shock absorber different to what w- those um, few things that we've been talking about throughout the seventies and eighties? Can you guys run us through that? Because I think that's a really interesting way because it's, it's almost like a, it's not a, a, a reaction to it. I don't think the shock absorber, it's almost a, a, in a sense, a third way. Yeah. What do you think, Tim? You got any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I suppose one thing I can speak of is my experience. So I was uh, growing up in youth group under Stuart um, and the shock absorber ministry. I wouldn't have had that label for it at the time as a teenager. Um, uh, but what our experience was growing up through the, the mid to late 90s um, in youth ministry um, was... Yeah, I can see now it was, I mean, maybe a middle way, um, but we were genuinely friends with each other. We were um, think, seeking to be Bible-centric. So the, the Bible was always opened as the most important part of what we did. So in that way, uh, the raising of genuine disciples and the genuine evangelistic nature of helping teenagers um, in language that they was relevant to them um, in cultural um, expressions that were relevant to them, understanding the truth of Scripture. So we would spend uh, significant portions of our time in the Word um, thinking about that and sometimes in small groups um, debriefing that as well. Um, and it was also a huge amount of fun. There was a lot of you know silliness like carrying pool tables around <laughs> or you know, the equivalent in Virginia High and, and, and mid-high school kids. There was... But there was this frivolity to it and joyfulness to it. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of teenagers there. I mean, when I was in year seven and eight youth group, there was probably 80 kids there, probably a similar number when I was going to the year nine, 10 youth group, which was following that. Um, so very big numbers for, you know, for Sydney 
um, church. Uh, and so there, I'm sure there are a lot of kids there who were there just for the fun. Um, but I never felt that that was what was being communicated, was that, you know, we come for the fun, oh, and there's this, you know, we put up with the Bible time. Uh, that was never communicated by the leaders um, or that we're, we're sometimes, you know, bait and switch, you know, oh, come for this fun whatever night uh and oh by the way now that you're here um and <laughs> you're stuck you, with us yeah, yeah. um we're not going to let you go until we've opened the bible with you like that was never the feel and there were actually there were nights that were um really uh i suppose hardcore in terms of their discipleship and, and their you know bible centeredness every turn we would have a prayer night and the only thing we would do is pray um, and we'd be in different groups and sometimes we do it in creative ways. And again, I don't, I'm not sure what Stuart's recollection is. I don't remember the numbers of those nights being significantly less than other nights. Um, so people were still coming. You'd still get 80 teenagers, seven years, seven and eight kids, um, hanging out and being led through prayer by the leaders. Um, that's not something that a funnel model would do. Uh, and yet the next night when we're doing, you know, crazy things isn't necessarily something that, um, the no gust, no glory model would necessarily come up with either. Um, and I think the difference from my perspective, and certainly as I've grown up and looked back and understood what uh, Stuart and the other leaders were trying to do, was it was because we are friends with Jesus um, and because the way that he's reconciled the leaders to himself uh, and the teenagers to himself and the way that we're then seeking to be agents of reconciliation out into those non-Christian mm. teenagers who are coming, uh, these are the kind of things that Christians do when they get together. So it wasn't come to this night because it's more exciting than hanging down at the park, getting drunk with your mates. Um, it was come to this night because there are people here who are enjoying being with each other and the enjoyment they're getting from being with each other is a Jesus-centric enjoyment and joyfulness. Um, and that in itself, there was, I suppose there was an attraction <laughs> there um, because you, you came and you felt welcomed into a community um, of people that genuinely cared for you. Um, so it wasn't attractional, you know, come here because it's the most fun you can have on a Friday night. Um, but it certainly wasn't you know, boring in any way, even though we spent good amount of time in our uh, night reading the Bible. So in that way, yeah, I did experience that. And I can look back now and say, yeah, let's see what was trying to do. And the, it didn't fit either of those dominant models um, that Stu talks about in the, in the 90s. Well, I mean, I, mean, I can totally relate to that because I, I completely agree with what you're saying. But it's not a surprise. We, this is a bit of propaganda for Shock Absorber and Sorrow Bible <laughs> Church. But, um, um, uh, just to pick up on a little couple of links that I thought there was, it's interesting how you talked about how there was a reaction to the attractional model in terms of stronger liturgy and robes and all that kind of stuff. But then you said at when you went to youth group, at Soul Revival, it was um, it was always centered around the Bible. So it's interesting how there's that thing of like we need to obviously keep the Bible the center of what we're doing, but how are we doing everything else in relation to that? I found that really interesting. Is that something that was always a thought? Yeah, I think that was a big debate. So if you go back to the late '80s, uh, Tom Smith, uh, Roger Bray, others in the youth department were really seeking to try and continue to make sure people were being discipled. But there was this, um, I think. Uh, this missional edge to it as well and they were really talking a lot about how do we stay missional and also disciple young people so they would talk about the bible and they would use it but like i said i think it was the institutionalized forms of john kitson's brass tacks that was the problem not 
not necessarily John's original idea from the late 70s. And and the No Guts, No Glory corrective actually ended up getting a lot of steam in the 90s because people were really looking for more depth in discipleship. But I think one of the interesting developments was that uh, Ken Moser was uh, brought into the Youth Works College when it was established in the late 90s with... Um, with uh, Graham Stanton and Lindsay Stoddard and um, and some of the guys that started Tim that. Foster. Tim Foster. yep. And when they started that, they brought Ken Moses' model in, I think, more thoroughly to unpack that more and spend more time. That wasn't to say every youth ministry in Sydney adopted No Guts, No Glory. Uh, Cameron Hislop at Janelle Anglican and Tim Hawkins at Castle Hill Anglican were really big on saying, yes, we have, attra- we have discipleship within this more... Um, I'd call it a cultural approach where there's there's a missional edge to it as well as uh, just the discipleship of sitting around for a Bible study. I think what was different about Soul Revival and the Shock Absorber idea, which we didn't call it the Shock Absorber until, say, the early 2000s, but we we I think what was freeing for us is we broke loose from the homogeneous unit principle. So constrained by the homogeneous unit principle, people were coming up with strategies that were designed for well you don't actually have a holistic approach where adults and youth are doing it together so what we'll do is we'll really hunker down and try and debate which strategy to this homogeneous unit of young people is in the church and if you haven't listened to one of the podcasts before we've defined the homogeneous unit principle as a strategy that came in the early 70s that said because culture has changed so much young people don't like hanging out with old people anymore in the culture so let's start youth services and youth groups for young people and let's have traditional or adult contemporary versions for adults and so a lot of youth ministry thinking was constrained by that to think how do we do youth ministry within that and i think we were one of the early groups that was starting to go well why do we have to be constrained by this homogeneous unit principle so i remember a big step for us in the early 90s was we were encouraged that we needed to set up a youth ministry and a young adults ministry and it just didn't make sense to us so even though it was only a really small generational impact, bringing two generations together, young adults and teenagers, doesn't look that dramatic. But that was a dramatic start for us because as young adults, we were starting to say, what does it look like for us to be friends with the kids as well as being their leaders? And one of the outcomes was, well, we need to hang out as friends together as Christians. If we're getting them together in a youth group, why don't we hang out with each other as a peer group and then bring them up into that? And one of the real radical parts of that was, we, if we're going to have teenagers mixing with us, we need to be appropriately thinking of our activities as being appropriate for teenagers, including not drinking. So on Saturday nights, our outcome was we ended up not drinking every Saturday night because we were just hanging out with young people and they didn't drink. So we were thinking of the weaker brother and we didn't drink. Now, some of us drunk on other nights, but we didn't drink alcohol because we were loving them. And that, that was a big witness to them. We didn't realise till years later that they saw that, that you guys are actually sacrificing something of what you would normally do for us. And that's why we think theology is so important, that theology leads you to think, if you're, if I think in the Southern Shire, incarnational theology, which says, let's, just like Jesus became a Jew to the Jews, let's become a surfer to the surfer, sometimes ends up affirming the culture that you're speaking into. And it can be difficult to actually challenge it with, with the fact that we're all sinful at some point. Whereas if you start with the atonement, and you say, well, Jesus died on the cross, and that's not only how we ha- uh, have reconciliation with God and each other, it is actually a lifestyle. 
So in Romans 12, Paul says, offer your, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So if you start with that theological paradigm that you're not actually going to church for yourself to get something for yourself, you actually become more servant-hearted. You become more corporate in your expression of Christianity and you become a bit more stable in your expression. And that was in a context in the Shire that over the 20 years of the traditional youth ministry model, and even with No Guts, No Glory, people were still in that homogeneous unit principle, which I think the side effect of was making people more individualistic, more consumeristic, and more transient. So the, the appeal of Soul Revival was we weren't playing by the old rules. So we didn't really fit into this big new argument in youth ministry of attractional approach versus No Guts, No Glory. We were just being Christians and we were being sacrificial Christians, and we were being intergenerational Christians. So as we got older, and some of us got married, and then we had kids, we didn't stop meeting together on Saturday night. So we kind of, rather than saying, we're going to start an intergenerational ministry, we grew into becoming an intergenerational ministry because of the theological framework of being sacrificial in the Bible. So the rest of Sydney was talking about that. And over time, as our revival grew in the 90s, we did get a bit more attention, but people couldn't classify us very easily because people who were in the No Guts, No Glory camp were saying we're attractional and people in the attractional camp were saying we're No Guts, No Glory. And Which is exactly what Tim was talking was about. what Tim was saying, yeah. Mm. So, so that's why we came up with that word shock absorber because we're actually saying let's get young people and older people to work together as, as, a, as a family, but let's not just, just disciple each other or just do mission. Let, let's actually do mission and discipleship at the same time. And the fascinating thing, Tim, you mentioned the prayer nights. I remember one prayer night that had 120 people at it and there were there were so many non-Christians there and they'd come along to check out what Christians do when they pray. They So we were praying in a way that the crowds could come and listen and work out what we were doing. And I'm fascinated that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount sits down to teach his disciples, he does it in public where the crowds can come and listen. And we really liked that. Not that that was prescriptive of Jesus saying this is how you have to do it, but it's a pretty cool model to, to actually disciple people in public because then people can listen and they can come and go and there's a bit of a semi-permeable membrane around your community that people can come in and come out. I remember on one night at Soul Revival, I came in a bit late one night and out the front were all these uh, bottles of beer that had li- been lined up on the fence out just in front of this little brick fence. There was all these bottles of uh, long necks we call them in Australia which are I don't know about two two glasses of beer or whatever I don't know and <laughs> anyway people used to go to the bottle o and buy a buy a long neck and in the 90s they weren't too strict on underage people buying long necks and they used to put them in a brown paper bag to hide that it was a long neck but obviously if you've got a drink in a brown paper bag it's obviously alcohol but anyway they, <laughs> I never understood that you but anyway I might as well just put the VB there they just it's VB yeah. uh, um, but anyway um, one night I came to Solis and there was a lineup of five or six bottles of these long necks that these non-Christian kids who'd been cruising around the streets who'd gone to the bottle low they'd just gone for a drink and then they'd been invited by their school friends to come along and check out this group on a Saturday night and it was a prayer night and they'd left their bottles out of respect at the front door so that they didn't bring them into it because they know Christians weren't drinking. They, they were told that. That's what you were saying before about people weren't surprised. Oh, it's a Christian thing. They were more attracted to why are these guys so into this? Like what, what is it about Jesus that gets them to want to do this? There's got to be something in this Jesus thing. And so they'd left the bottles of beer out, out the front and they'd come in and they'd been a part of the prayer night. And that night, one of those guys became a Christian. 
when he sat down with a group of Christians who were praying. But before we prayed, we explained what prayer was. And we just said that we have a relationship with God because of Jesus. And this young guy goes, I want a relationship with Jesus too. I'd really want to be in relationship with God. And we're like, well, do you want to pray tonight? And we'll pray for you. And he prayed and became a Christian. So um, I, I never found out if he went and picked up his beer on the way home or not. I'm not <laughs> sure. But yeah, that that's, I don't know. But telling that story, it just illustrates that, that there's a... Um, a desire, I suppose, from us in this podcast to encourage people to make the Bible and the Word of God central, that our theology doesn't change. But when we think of our strategies, we can we can sort of break out of this homogeneous unit principle that says that it just has to be thought through within the world of teenagers. If you start thinking of how do young people and adults interact with each other, it brings a lot of freedom and you can think of new ways of doing things so for example that night when those kids brought the beers along there are enough people in their late 20s to be able to cope with that situation you didn't just have a group of younger youth leaders that wouldn't have known what to do with that we even had a few of us who were in our 30s when they came along and so bringing those sort of adults together to bear on that situation made it safe because they were able to not freak out but also not be permissive of that and the last thing I suppose I'd say about Soul Revival too that we worked out is that when we we always wanted to gather around God's word every time we met socially. So rather than saying we're meeting socially and we're injecting the Bible into that, we used to publicly announce to the world, Christian, non-Christian, we're meeting together mm. around the word of God to listen to what Jesus has to say and we're going to do this stuff as well. And that meant the kids who were committed Christians who came to that were setting the culture because we gave them permission to set the Christian culture. The problem with an attractional approach is if you have a skate night and all the skaters come, skateboarders run the night. And if the Christians are there, they find it hard to work with the youth leaders to set a Christian culture. But we'd have a band night, 400 kids come along to a concert, and then I'd stand up with the Bible at, after the first or second set and go, hey, let's have a read. And three quarters of the room would sit down and the non-Christians would look at all these other Christian kids and go, oh, we'd better sit down too because that's what you do here. And everyone would sit down. And then the non-Christians are like watching the Christians. The Christians are all quiet, sitting there listening. And then, bang, some of them got Bibles. And they're pulling them out of their pockets and they're reading them before iPhones. And um, some of the non-Christians are like, where do I get one of them? Like, it was unreal. It was like mm. reverse uh, peer pressure. <laughs> and so that gave me permission as a youth leader to speak for 20, 30, 40 minutes because everyone's like engaging. And then sit down for another hour or two hours after that talking to people in the midst of a band night. So it was in a way, I think, when I read about the Jesus movement, it was similar to what I think that earlier expression was rather than the institutional form of it. But we'd recruit, we'd, we'd redefine that and done it differently because we'd broken out of the homogeneous unit principle. I find that really interesting because um, uh, you would say perhaps that the homogeneous unit principle was institutionalised mm. and um, a lot of the ideas that we've talked about have become... You know, even going back to the um, Sunday school movement that you've talked about before, yep. is it became very widespread and then institutionalized. And I know you've done a lot of research on that. I'd love for you guys to answer probably the final question for this podcast is how do we fight against institutionalization so we don't have these ideas that become stale? Yeah, that's really helpful. Got any thoughts, Tim? Yeah, I think one of the things, uh, and I'm, I'm, again, I think I've picked this up from you over the last 20 or so years, but the idea that we're... It, the shock absorber in some ways will institutionalise what we're trying to, as it does, the whole model is about um, 
listening to the younger generations and being shaped by them. So in some ways, you're kind of institutionalising a change method yeah. uh, into the system. Right. And so you're actually saying we, we want as our culture to be one that is constantly listening to and, and genuinely accepting um, and importing um, the, the conversation from our youngest brothers and sisters. Uh, and so as culture changes uh, and teenagers and young adults are the ones who are particularly at the forefront of those changes and feel that most um, forcefully, yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're then speaking that up into the church. And then you have that larger group, that intergenerational uh, group of 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way through to senior saints who are there sitting with the teenagers, listening to them, tell us what is it like being a, a Christian in high school today? And they get to speak up into those generations and those generations um, are not patronising and they're not um, dismissing and they're not just trying to speak down to them, but actually saying, okay, that's really interesting. How can we help you um, be Christian, boldly, enthusiastically Christian in that way? And also, what are you learning in which that can shape our church? Um, and so... Uh, if the shock absorber does become a, a model in which it does institutionalise, that would be the best expression of it, is it is actually institution, institutionalising a system for change mm. um, that is long-term and will continue to modify as generations continue to come and cultures continue to shift and change. Yeah, I really like that. So instituting the system of change rather than waiting for something to institutionalise and then changing it. Mm. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Do you agree with Stu? Yeah, if I could just jump in and... and uh, say say something to that too. I really that was really clear, Tim. Thank you for that. And um, I I've really find it helpful, Joel, how you lead us in these conversations because it's really interesting how things occur to you as as people are saying something. So thank you for that. Um, but one one thing I think you could also think about uh, with that, as I was listening to you say that, Tim, is it, it's almost institutionalizing relationships rather than institutionalizing mm. a principle or a model. Okay. That's saying we we actually want to be in a relationship with Jesus. And we want that to affect our relationships. And so let's keep thinking relationally as we go. I think that might be also yeah, that's really a good helpful. thing to think. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we can wrap this episode up. But um, Tim, do you want to let us know what, what are we looking at for next episode? Because I know that you're at the forefront of that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the forefront, but no, we're going to be shifting into the 90s um, oh. and looking at um, uh, another book, um, that, um, what's his name? Mark Center. Mark Center. Mark Center the <laughs> third. That's it, mental blank. Another book that Mark Center the third put out um, in the late 90s, which was a conversation between four different models of youth ministry. Uh, so we're going to be starting to look at that over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to be looking at uh, the preparatory model. Um, not necessarily a phrase that I think was used in Australia, but one that has a lot of resonances uh, in the ways that youth ministry was being done in the 90s um, and we can see what those resonances are and um, what the conversation is around that approach. So can you give us a little, a, the tiny little glimpse of what the preparatory approach is? Yeah, um, so Wesley Black is the guy who writes that chapter um, and his definition is essentially that youth ministry is a way in which you prepare teenagers to be fully fledged members of the church. Um, and so what you're doing is uh, real ministry to these uh, young Christians, um, but it's, it is preparing them to be fully-fledged members. Um, and so, yeah, that you can probably already see the hints of where we might um, <laughs> uh, push back on, on that model and the way that he defines it. Um, 
Yeah, so that's what we're talking about next week. No, that'll be exciting. Um, thank you very much for joining us, guys. Uh, we are on YouTube or any podcast app that you choose to listen to. Um, if you have any questions or want to add to the conversation, you can email me at joel at shockazorba.com.au. And we also have a Discord, which you can jump on. That'll be in the show notes, so check that out and you can get involved in the chat there. But for now, as we always like to finish every episode, we'll finish with a one-way. One way. Yeah.